Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are continuing this morning a sermon series that we've been in in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, We've called this series Origins uh, because really in these first 11 chapters of the Bible, we get the origins of so much of what we believe as Christians about the world, about who God is and who we are, about the way that the world works, about our calling and our relationships within it. And so this morning uh, we are in Genesis chapter 9. And I'm going to invite Haley to come in uh, to read our scriptures this morning. Our scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Well, let's just go ahead and acknowledge at the outset of this sermon that this is a weird passage. Uh, This is a strange and messy story. Uh, If you grew up in the church at all, you might have uh, learned about the story of Noah in your Sunday school classes. You might have seen uh, pictures of Noah and the ark and the animals. It is very unlikely that your learning of Noah's story continued on uh, to drunk naked Noah uh, being seen by his sons in his tent. Uh, This is a strange story. Uh, It's an odd story. It's a messy story. And the Bible uh, is full of these strange and messy stories because they remind us that life is strange and messy, right? There are not... uh, people that are all good, families that are all good, and others that are all evil and all bad. The world is a mixed bag. Human nature is a mixed bag. You and I are a mixed bag. Vladimir Nabokov, uh, the great great Russian uh, novelist and short story writer, said this. He says, the only bad stories are stories that lie about human nature. The only bad stories are stories that lie about human nature. 
right? And we know those kind of stories, the kind of stories that paint their protagonist as either too, too heroic to struggle, their villains too dark to wrestle with moral ambiguity, those that paint some families as entirely joyful and happy. That is a lie about human nature. All of us are both beautiful and broken, blessed and struggling, graced and sinful. One of the things that I think uh, has made the Bible such a, a series of compelling stories throughout human history is whether you, you believe uh, its claims about God and salvation in Christ, whatever you think about its theological claims, the Bible pulls no punches about human nature. The Bible tells the truth about even its heroes. So we get this odd family drama story with Noah and his family. We get David and his adultery. We get Moses and his murder. We get Peter and his cowardice, right? Even the heroes in the Bible are shown to be frail and flawed and human because that's the kind of world that we live in. We are frail, flawed human beings. And if there is to be any hope for us, if there's to be any grace for us, it has to land in the real world uh, of who we know ourselves to be warts and all. And so this story is really uh, one that's about what kind of world do we live in now? Right? You remember Noah has come through the flood. God has essentially hit the reset button on his creation. Starting over in place of Adam and Eve starting the creation, it's now Noah and his family at the head of this new creation that God is bringing about. And the question is, what kind of world is it going to be? And we see in this story that the flood was not a reset button on the fallenness of the world. It didn't wash away human sin. This story shows us that we live in what's both a fallen and yet graced world. That it's a fallen world and yet a world shot through with God's grace. To understand this story, we have to understand its connection uh, to that first story of Adam and Eve in the garden. If Noah is meant to be a second Adam, a recapitulation of the Adam story, well, then this story is a rehashing of the fall. If you remember the story of humanity's first fall into sin, we have Adam planting a garden. Adam in the Garden of Eden, as he was called to be, he was made to be a man of the earth. And so he's there, he's in the garden, and he takes some of the fruit of that garden, he and Eve, and they eat it. It leads to them being naked and ashamed. And the story ends with a series of blessings and curses. And we see all of those elements coming through again in this story. We're told here that Noah began to be a man of the soil. That word for soil is Adamah. It's the same Hebrew word uh, from which we get the name Adam. So it's drawing that connection between Noah and Adam. Noah becomes a gardener. He plants a vineyard. And he takes some of the fruit of that vineyard and he drinks it. He drinks his wine. The story leads to him being naked and ashamed. And it ends in a series of blessings and curses. This is a retelling of the story of the fall in a lot of ways. The same dysfunction, the same inner family struggles. As if God is drawing our attention to say, no, no, no. You don't get out of the fall. That all of us inherit a fallen world. All of us inherit broken families and broken homes. All of us inherit divided and confused hearts. And so how do we live in a fallen 
and yet graced world. That's what this story shows us. How do we live in a fallen and yet graced world? The first thing that we see in the story is that in this fallen but graced world, we are invited to rejoice and to rest. We're invited to rejoice and to rest. In fact, Noah's name in Hebrew means rest. When Lamech, his father, named his son Noah, he named him rest. And in Genesis chapter 5, Lamech gives us the reasons that he names Noah this, uh, as he says this prophecy about his son. In Genesis 5, he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, if you remember that in Genesis 3 after the fall, uh, God says, You are going to earn your living, mankind, from the soil, but instead of just life-giving crops, it's going to give back thorns and thistles, right? By the sweat and hard work of your brow, you are going to get a living from the earth. And so uh, Lamech says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief, his name Noah, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah will be the one who brings rest and relief from the toil of our hands. And so now we land in Genesis chapter 9, and we see what Lamech was talking about all the way back in Genesis 5. When we learn uh, that Noah began to be a man of the soil, 920, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine, of that vineyard. The relief that Lamech was prophesying that Noah would bring uh, had nothing to do with the flood. It had nothing to do with what most of us would think would be the uh, lead part on Noah's resume, led all of creation through a flood, uh, maintained the animal and human life on earth through the ark. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about what we might call Noah's second career, which is after he got off of the ark, Noah invented winemaking. Noah was the first one who cultivated the grapes, which were a creation of God, in a vineyard, and then took their juice and cultivated wine. And so Lamech was looking, it's a heck of a second career, right? That's not a, not a bad second act for Noah. And so Lamech's looking forward to this, and he's saying Noah, through his winemaking, through his cultivation of the earth and his bringing out of wine, is going to be the one who gives us relief from our hard work under the sun, our hard work in toiling against the earth. And so here we get the introduction of uh, what will be a key theme uh, in the scriptures, which is the role that wine plays in the story of the Bible. Now, wine uh, in the scriptures is almost always described as a good. In fact, um, most ancient religions, uh, most of uh, Israel's contemporaries, when they tell their stories of creation and their origins, in most of them, wine is a gift of the gods. The gods come down directly and give humanity wine uh, as a relief, as a way to uh, rejoice and relax and enjoy uh, this world in an almost divine way. And yet in the scriptures, it's not a direct gift from God. It's an act of human cultivation. Remember the call that God had given uh, to, to Adam and then reiterated to Noah that they were to fill the earth and to subdue it, right? They were to take the goods that God had created and then harvest them and create new and better things out of them, bringing out their full potential. And so Noah does that with wine here. Everywhere in the scriptures, wine uh, represents joy, 
In the Psalms, uh, we learn that wine gladdens the heart of man. Uh, it's a symbol of relationship and love. In the Song of Songs, the lovers say to each other uh, that your love is even better than wine. It becomes a sign uh, of love, of joy, of rest. And ultimately, it becomes even a sign of God's life with his people. In Isaiah 55, uh, when he envisions the messianic banquet, he envisions the people drinking wine on the mountain of God and entering into rest and joy and life with God. Now, there are, of course, cautions uh, in the Bible about wine, right? It's meant to be a relief and a joy to us, but uh, it is mentioned negatively in what it can lead to. It can lead to addiction, right? That's uh, one of the, uh, the Bible words that will get used often is the word drunkard, uh, especially in, in the Proverbs. That doesn't mean somebody who drinks wine or even somebody who drinks uh, wine and feels its effects. It means somebody who's led into a lifestyle of destruction and foolishness because they can't give it up. And at that point, it ceases to be a life-giving good and becomes damaging. Or uh, it'll be mentioned in the sins that it can lead to, right? That it can lead you to make decisions you might not otherwise make. But wine itself is never uh, a negative in the scriptures. It's always a gift, a gift that's often associated because of its link with joy and rest, with the Sabbath. And that's what Noah's doing here. Noah's having finished his hard work, uh, he is resting and he's rejoicing. There's nothing untowards about what goes on here with Noah. That's a little bit obscured uh, in the English translation because of the way that it says that Noah got drunk. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Noah drank to the point of illness. Uh, all it necessarily means is that Noah drank his wine and he felt the effects of that wine. But interestingly, in Genesis 9, Noah is not censured by the author for his sin. It's, it's his son Ham uh, that sins here. What Noah does is he drinks his wine and then feeling the effects of that wine, walks into his tent, takes off his robe and goes to sleep. And so Noah, uh, the one who creates wine, partakes of that wine, enters into some of the rest and joy that his father Lamech prophesied that it would bring to him, and he goes to sleep. You know, in the sacramental world of the Bible, uh, wine is never just wine, right? Water is never just water, rocks are never just rocks, and wine is never just wine. It always points beyond itself, right? It does offer joy, rest, relationship, communion. But it's always driving us towards what it would become in the hands of Jesus, which is a sign of the joy and rest and communion that he offers. That it was meant to be a sign and seal of the new covenant in his blood. The only way that we can really taste and know real and true and lasting joy and rest and relationship and communion with God and with one another. Reminded, of course, of Jesus' first miracle uh, at, the wedding of Cain, at the wedding at Cana. When the servants come to him and say, the wine has run out. Right, that, that thing that we had put at the center of this celebration, the sign of our joy in this wedding, we've run out of it. There's no more to be had. And the joy and life and communion uh, that physical wine offers does eventually always run out. It can never meet our deepest longings for joy and rest. In Jesus, uh, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, y'all shouldn't have been drinking wine anyway. 
No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say even that you're wrong to look to physical created things to help you celebrate, to be a part of your joy. There's no judgment. He just multiplies it. He turns water into more and we're told better wine. Right? The things of this world. We shouldn't uh, condemn it because it seems unspiritual. But we should always acknowledge that it's meant to point us beyond itself to the reality that it represents. Our life feasting and enjoying communion with God forever in his presence through the blood of Jesus. And so in a fallen world, we are invited to rest and to rejoice in this life. In an an expectation of our rejoicing in Christ forever. And then secondly, in a fallen and yet graced world, we see that love always means the covering of shame. That love in a fallen world means to cover shame. You know, if you get into the research on this passage and try to understand what Ham did wrong, it becomes a very interesting question. Uh, I won't get into all of it here, but commentators uh, go all over the place uh, on what Ham's sin was here with Noah. It's clearly a big deal. Uh, It's clearly a big enough deal that it leads to Noah cursing Ham, his son Canaan, and all of their descendants. Right. So this is whatever happens here is uh, bigger than just the night itself. It is a sign of something deeply wrong and broken inside of Ham. Something that, uh, that leads Noah to, to identify that Ham is uh, the seed of the serpent, right? Remember, we saw that prophecy in Genesis 3 that there would be throughout history a seed of the serpent that would be in, in opposition to God and curse, and a seed of the woman that God would be working through by his covenant. One family of blessing, one of cursing, and what happens here is enough for Noah to say, Ham, Canaan, you are a part of that uh, movement away from God and the human family. And so what is it that Ham does here? Noah, being done with his work and done with his wine, goes into his tent and he strips down, he takes off his robe, and he goes to sleep. Again, Noah's not doing anything wrong here. It's not like he's stumbling around naked in front of everybody. He's still clothed by his tent. He goes into what he assumed was the privacy of his own home, got undressed and went to bed. But he left himself there vulnerable and exposed in his tent. And Ham walks into the tent. We're not told if he walks in on purpose, seeking some way to mock his father, or if he just walks in accidentally. But he doesn't do what he should have done. What he should have done at a minimum was avert his eyes and leave the tent, or at a maximum, do what his brothers do, which is while averting their gaze, cover him up with his robe, covering over his nakedness and his vulnerability. Ham's sin here has to do with his transgressing the boundary of Noah's dignity and privacy, him taking his father, who he should have held in respect and honor, And instead, mocking him, he goes out after having seen his father uh, there in that vulnerable and exposed state. And he goes out and he tells his brothers. Now, we don't know what his intent was in telling his brothers. We don't know if it was simply to mock his dad. Hey, look at dad in there. Go look at him. 
or if there was something in what he was doing that had to do with taking Noah's position uh, as the head of their family, right? We think that that's, uh, and I, uh, I tend to be sympathetic with commentators who think that's basically what's going on, that Noah had taken off his robe. And remember in the scriptures, uh, in the world of the ancient uh, Near East, a robe was never just a robe. It was a sign of someone's dignity, their office, their standing. And so remember who Noah was. He was essentially, as soon as he comes off the ark, he leads the worship of his family, making sacrifices to God. So he's a priest wearing a priestly robe. And he's essentially the king, the king of this new family, this new creation, the one to him was given the command that if, if uh, a human being or an animal spilled the blood of another person, they should also give up their life. So Noah is bringing justice. He's leading people to worship. So he's essentially in this role of a priest and king over his creation, the, this, uh, this world that Adam was given as priest and king, now Noah serves. And when he takes off his robe, it seems like what Ham is after here is he sees his father's uh, role, he sees his father's authority, his priestly and kingly role laying there, and he begins to conspire with his brothers to usurp their father, to take his role, to somehow put him in his place and to overtake him. And so his brothers take the garment, take this royal and priestly robe, and they go into the tent. The author gives this beautiful detail that they place the robe on their shoulders, they turn away, and they back up towards their father so as to not expose uh, his vulnerability any further. And they cover him over uh, with his robe once again. They take this man uh, who is worthy of their honor, and they covered over his shame by giving him his dignity, by giving him his privacy, by restoring to him the dignity of his office uh, and of who he was uh, meant to be to them. And in this, uh, we learn that in a fallen world, loving anyone will always mean dealing with shame. To love anyone in a broken and fallen world means to love a sinner, right? There are no other kinds of people that you can love. If you're a parent, your children are sinners. And so treating them when they're ashamed, when they feel exposed and vulnerable, when they're caught doing wrong, to love them means to learn how to relate to them in the midst of their shame. If you're married, shame will always be a, a part of your relationship with your spouse, right? We're always, we're all trying to get back to that pre-creation world in which Adam and Eve knew each other and what they were naked and without shame. But you'll see your spouse's weakness. You'll see their frailty. You'll see their failures in the world, whether it be at work uh, or at home or in their other relationships. You'll see their sin. They'll sin against you. You'll sin against them. You'll see them when they can't believe that they are worthy of love. And love means knowing how to relate to one another in a place of shame. We deal with this at work, too. If you're uh, in the working world, you will have to deal with when people are exposed in their errors. When somebody did a bad job at the project, when their work wasn't quite what it should have been. And so to love someone, to relate to someone in this world means to learn to relate to sinners in shame. And here we see the way that we're to do it, that love covers over shame. 
Love refuses to mock another person in their shame. Love refuses to pile on and make them feel their shame worse, twisting the knife of their failure. That love means to cover shame. Shem and Lamech know this. We know this. We've seen the model, haven't we, in Genesis, uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3 at the fall. God shows us how love covers shame. When he comes towards Adam and Eve in the midst of their failure, when they're hiding behind the bushes and he, and he takes and makes garments for them, he makes a clothing for them, he covers over their shame. To love one another means that we learn to cover shame. Well, how do we do that practically for one another? I think there's a, a myriad of ways, but just to look at a few. I think it means that we refuse gossip, right? When you hear a report about somebody else, did you hear that such and such did such and such? That to cover over someone's shame means that you refuse to listen to gossip. You refuse to pour fuel on that fire by telling others and, and expanding the exposure, whether true or not, of the subject of that gossip. To cover shame is to refuse gossip. To cover shame is to learn to forgive quickly. It's to relate to someone. Uh, we should be people who are safe to fail because we quickly and easily forgive. We're not worried about being taken for a sucker if we forgive too, too softly or too quickly. But to cover another's shame, we're quick with words of mercy and forgiveness and grace. To cover over one another's shame means that we share our own vulnerability. Right? It means that we don't relate to the person in a place of, man, I can't believe you did that. But instead, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me tell you about myself and my own, my own brokenness, my own shame, my own failures, my own frailty. That we can cover over the shame of another person and we connect with them in our own sinfulness, brokenness, and vulnerability. We've learned through Jesus uh, that to be loved as sinners means to be seen as we really are, naked and vulnerable and broken, and yet covered over by his righteousness, by his robes. He was stripped naked on the cross, exposed to shame and mocking, so that our shame could be covered over and hidden. And so we do that for one another when we love and cover people's shame. And then finally, in a fallen and yet graced world, only Jesus can truly reconcile us. Only Jesus can truly reconcile us. What we see here in the aftermath uh, of this story is a family torn apart by shame. Two of the brothers receiving a blessing, one receiving a cursing. Look at these verses, uh, 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest, what his youngest son had done to him. Interestingly, we, don't, we assume that his brothers told him, uh, that the other brothers told Noah what had happened. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So he has three different words for his three different sons. For Ham and his son Canaan, he says that you are cursed, uh, that you are like Cain before you, part of that line of the serpent 
that's vulnerable, that's exposed to God's cursing, having turned your back on God and his order, you find yourself exposed to his judgment. It's important to note that this, uh, this cursing, this judgment, is a, it's a religious and moral cursing. Right? It has to do not with, uh, with blood descendants, even less to do with race. It has everything to do with, with the vision that Noah has of Ham's children following on after him in his waywardness against God and God's created order. Right? This isn't to say that the Canaanites are to be cursed simply because they're Canaanites, simply because they bear the blood of Ham and Canaan. But their cursedness has to do with their idolatry, the fact that they followed their father away from God. I mentioned race here because this passage has a tragic history, particularly uh, as it relates uh, to the, the forced enslavement of African peoples. Uh, that in particularly in the American South, this verse was often used to justify slavery, that the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Canaan were forever meant to be servants of other races. And we should just say at the outset that that is an abominable teaching out of this passage. That is an example, uh, not of the right way to interpret a Bible passage, uh, but rather it's actually, it's, a, it's a, a fitting sign of exactly how dangerous it is when we bring our own uh, preferences and worldview to the Bible and look for a passage that we can use and twist to meet our own needs. And the human heart has an almost infinite capacity to do this, right? Particularly when we come to the Bible from a position of wealth and power, which white Southern land-owning Bible interpreters did, and come and try to find a passage that we can use to somehow justify our clinging to that power, to that sin. And so it's important, it's crucially important to note here that the curse that's placed on Ham and Cain and later the Canaanites is one about their idolatry. They're wandering away from the true God. And as we're going to see, that the curse was only on them as long as they continued to do that. That in wandering away from God, our life leads to emptiness and judgment and brokenness. And so uh, God places this curse through Noah on uh, the descendants of Ham. Interestingly, as Genesis goes on, most of Israel's enemies are going to be from the line of Ham, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. And so this is essentially, a, uh, in the story, a way of judging those who would come to align themselves against God's people. Now, Shem uh, becomes the father of the people of Israel. It's where we get the word Semitic when we talk about uh, Israelites. So uh, the, the, the descendants of Shem... Noah says, blessed be the Lord, that's blessed be Yahweh, God's covenant name, his particular and personal name, that God would enter into covenant with the descendants of Shem. Shem would be the father of the Israelites. Verse 27, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth, as the story goes on, we learn, becomes the father essentially of the Western peoples. Right? We're told that in, in Genesis 9 that these three sons spread out and populate the earth. And Japheth becomes the father of the people who go on to be the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And so they're not told that they're in relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God, but Elohim, the, the, name, the general name for God. And that they would have a more or less peaceful relationship 
with God's people through the line of Shem. And so what we see here is the fragmenting of a family. And through them, the fragmenting of the human family. That some will be obedient to God. Some will recognize his redemption and live in covenant with him. Others will wander off. Some will live antagonistically towards God's people. Others more peacefully. And yet, God's plan all along is to bring this family back together through Jesus. The plan all along is for a humanity that would not be fragmented by bloodline or religion, but one in which all people would find their belonging to God and to one another in the gospel. We get this beautiful picture of this in the book of Acts, right? Within a few uh, decades of the death of Christ, his resurrection and ascension, we begin to see a family coming back together, right? Think about the book of Acts. You have the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch when he meets Philip along the way. That's a descendant of Ham, according to Genesis, coming back into the line of Seth. We have Peter and Paul and most of the other disciples who would have been in the line of Seth. We have Cornelius, uh, the Greek or the Roman soldier coming in, uh, converted and now in the line of Seth when he would have been uh, in the line of Japheth. And of course, as the story goes on, as Gentiles respond to the gospel. We get in Christ this beautiful, reconciled, multi-ethnic, multilingual family as a sign in a broken and fallen world that God's grace invites us to joy and it covers our shame and it reconciles us to God and it reconciles us to one another. Friends, there's hope in a fallen world. In a broken and fallen world, we find our life, our hope, hidden with God in Christ by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of the fallenness of this world, that you come near to us by your grace. You feed us with a true feast. You supply us with the wine of a new covenant and invite us to feast with you. You cover over our shame and our nakedness so that we don't have to live in hiding or shame. And you reconcile us. You reconcile us to your Father, and you reconcile us in this family of faith together. Lord Jesus, in this world, broken though it is, help us to cling to you, Lord Jesus, by faith. Help us to walk with you by hope that even uh, in the midst of a time of suffering and confusion, the likes of which most of us have never gone through, that we have reason to hope. And Lord, lead us in love. Help us to love you, to love one another, and to love our neighbors. All this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.